Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to finish the whole chapter except for one verse. Uh, We'll leave out verse 25 for future. Acts 12, beginning at verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So, on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of, the, of God grew and multiplied. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. It is our desire to be conformed to it, to be encouraged by it, uh, to uh, grow in our faith and our uh, abilities to serve You better through it. And so I pray that You would anoint my lips and uh, take the feebleness of my speech and enable it, Father, to uh, build up this Your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
We love answers to prayer that make sense, but sometimes tragedies happen in answer to prayer, and uh, sometimes martyrdoms happen in answer to prayer. I'm reading to uh, my family on Sunday afternoons uh, another biography called uh, Lords of the Earth, and it's really a marvelous uh, biography showing how God opened up this region to the gospel. The main character is a guy by the name of Stan Dale. And in some ways, he was kind of an ornery character, just made to be a martyr. Uh, in other ways, uh, he had some really marvelous, marvelous uh, characteristics about him. Uh, but he had had some degree of success in winning people to Christ in that region. And there was a lot of prayers that went up. But it seems as if, you know, the, the events that followed were a mockery to those prayers. They really were not. But it seemed like they were because just when things were beginning to open up, uh, they were surrounded by some cannibals. They were shot full of arrows, dismembered and eaten. And the um, government said, we're not letting any more missionaries go into that area. And so the whole work was completely closed down and did not get reopened up again until another tragedy happened where there was a missionary plane that crashed and everybody aboard died except for one uh, young boy, and it was right in that region. And there was an old man from amongst the people who had killed Standale and the other missionary who uh, kind of took that boy into his home, protected him, befriended him. And uh, later on, he was uh, picked up uh, by the missionaries. They discovered him, and they were able to reestablish some ties uh, with that group. But it was only later that... Uh, anybody found out the degree to which these missionaries had a profound impact upon the very people that were killing them. As uh, they were being riddled with arrows, these missionaries were pulling the arrows out, breaking them, throwing them to the ground and preaching to these people the gospel of peace. And finally, these um, warriors who were shooting at them were becoming terrified that they had attacked gods. These guys just weren't dying. Uh, and they were saying, please die, please die, because uh, they were worried about what they were doing. It took 100 arrows apiece before these guys uh, fell. Uh, and um, yet, as a result of the martyrdom and deaths uh, that later happened in that plain, hundreds of thousands of Yali uh, came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the intricate twistings of providence in that story make for an interesting read, just like the book of Esther. And I highly recommend that you read it. But in this chapter, we have four amazing answers to prayer, some of which were very puzzling answers to prayer. Uh, we have the glorious martyrdom of James. Then there is the freeing of Peter from prison. Then the violent death of Herod. And then finally, the growth of God's word and the advancement of Christ's cause. Now, when a church is being persecuted, it might be very tempting to think, Lord, the only answers we need are for you to take out these persecutors as in verses 20 through 23. But what we want to see is God is just as sovereign in verses 1 through 3 as he is in the rest of the chapter. <clears throat> there is a place for imprecatory pr prayers, but I want us to learn from each of these unique answers to prayer. Verse 1 begins, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Uh, things had gotten really bad in politics. This was Herod Agrippa I. When you're reading 
secular history, it's really <laughs> confusing because there's so many different Herods and keeping them all uh, straight in your mind is sometimes a tough thing. But this was the grandson of Herod the Great, uh, the one who had uh, attacked Christ, you know, when Christ was born. And Herod uh, the Great had killed Herod Agrippa's father, Aristobulus, and Herod Agrippa's mother was very concerned for his life, so she sent Herod off to um, uh, Rome where he befriended a lot of people in the imperial family. In fact, he became very close friends with Caligula, who was to be the next emperor. When Caligula came to the throne, he elevated uh, uh, Herod Agrippa and gave him the tetrarchies of Syria, Galilee, and Perea, named him a king. Uh, first uh, king over this region since uh, Herod the Great. In AD 41, Caligula was murdered and the emperor Claudius added Judea to uh, Agrippa's territory. So he had obviously been doing some great networking in Rome and he was trying to do exactly the same thing in these regions that he was uh, working with. He tried to curry favor with the leaders and to consolidate his power. And one of the ways that he did it was by persecuting uh, the church of Jesus Christ. And to this day, we see Satan manipulating leaders by taking their motivations and using them to oppose Christianity or to, or to oppose some principles that God would have of righteousness from His Word. According to Paul Marshall, author of Their Blood Cries Out, there is persecution of Christians in more than 60 countries worldwide. There are 200 million Christians who face threats of harassment, abuse, torture, and death because of their faith. And in this story, we're not told exactly what the harassment was, what kind of persecution, was it death? We're not really told, but Herod becomes even more bold. And so in verse 2, it says, Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, this may have come as a shocker to people because now it became apparent no one is exempt from the possibility of martyrdom. Uh, for the last 14 years, these apostles have been working in the uh, heart of the place where persecution had started, right in Jerusalem. seems like they're invincible. A lot of other people are getting killed, but they have not been killed. But it becomes apparent uh, no one is exempt from the possibility of martyrdom. In fact, church history tells us that all of the apostles, with the exception of the apostle Paul, eventually became martyrs. And so the question is, why? Why does God allow this to happen? Because he certainly has the power to stop such uh, senseless killings. And yet God in this verse allows one of Christ's closest friends, that inner circle of Peter, James and John, uh, to, to die. And I can think of three reasons why this is not a tragedy but was a marvelous answer to prayer. And the first one is that anyone who dies prematurely. Now, from God's perspective, there is no premature death because our deaths, the day of our death has uh, already been determined by the Lord. But from a human perspective, those who die prematurely are just getting to heaven that much sooner. It is not a curse. It is a blessing. God says precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. When people died out in Ethiopia, that was uh, one of the best means of outreach of the gospel. More people came to Christ through funerals, I think, than came through other uh, way, uh, areas because people could see the contrast of their hopelessness 
and the hope, the peace, the joy that they had as this person had made his homecoming to the Lord. Uh, We are giving up the miseries and the uh, pains and discomforts of this life for the glories of heaven. And that's true even when a baby dies. Okay, now we have sorrow. We have grief. Uh, We have pain from that, but the baby has entered into, much sooner than we do, into glory. He's missed out on living. He has not missed out on life more abundant. The second reason that this is not a tragedy is that martyrdom is an honor. Now, we all have to die sometime. Let me tell you something. To be able to die as a martyr is an incredible, incredible privilege from the hand of the Lord. The early church considered martyrdom so blessed that they many times would turn themselves into the authorities. They would volunteer for death, which I don't recommend that people do. But they did that because they understood something about martyrdom we many times miss. And that is that martyrs have a special place in God's heart in his kingdom and have special rewards and are considered blessed. The third reason that this was not a tragedy is that God has a purpose for every event that he plans under heaven. Every event. We cannot die one second sooner than God has planned for us to die. Now, last year I shared about my niece's premature death in in an auto accident and how the Lord used that to lead two of the people that she had been praying for to salvation. It was also used uh, for salvation of others as it got aired on TV and as uh, many unbelievers came to the, uh, the funeral service. Now, we may not always know what the good is that God will bring out of such events, but uh, we do know God does bring forth good. An early Christian leader in the 100s A.D. by the name of Clemens Alexandrinus tells us that the man who seized and accused James, and it seems like he's a guard, but we're, we're not entirely sure on that, but that he was so overwhelmed when he witnessed the powerful testimony of James uh, before his accusers that he fell on his knees before James, asked his forgiveness for having arrested him and having accused him, which was granted to him. And he immediately made a public, bold profession of faith and was beheaded along with James. Eusebius, the historian, says, that he believes that that story was an accurate story. And so that may have been one of many purposes that God had for the death of James, but there's always a reason. God has turned so many other tragedies into vehicles for the advancement of His kingdom that the early church coined a phrase that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Even when it's simply an early death, we can have confidence that God is in control and that His silences are not silences of lack of care. Some of you have heard my mother tell a story along these lines. Uh, My parents lost two babies in Ethiopia because there was no uh, medical care close by that would be able to save their lives. They were too far away from civilization uh, for premature babies to be able to uh, survive. Uh, But those deaths had a profound impact on an old lady. My mother would go out and witness in the homes of uh, the women and they would come to my mother's house. And there was one old lady that was 101 years old, verified age, which is remarkable for Ethiopia. They tend to die very young there. And God had really placed a burden upon my mother's heart 
for her salvation. She had been taken as a child from a different region into this area, never seen her mother uh, again from that time on. She had outlived all 12 of her children. And when my mother would share the gospel with her, which she did many times, she would always say, I was born a Muslim, I will die a Muslim. And this lady came to the wake of my mother's second child who died. And that's just the custom in Ethiopia. Uh, Everybody has to come and sit with you. And it could be wearing, you know, you're grieving here. It could be very wearing, but it's a great opportunity for sharing the gospel of hope and of um, a comfort with others. And this lady said, your baby may not have died if you had stayed home. At any rate, you would have had your mother with you coming from a strange province and uh, suffering without her mother. Uh, She had a special heart for what my uh, mom was going through and also really appreciated the fact that my parents, because of their love for Ethiopia, had left their family behind. But anyway, she went on. She said, you've been telling me for a long time the story of why Jesus died and I now accept him as my Lord and Savior. Sometime later, She was at the house again with some other guests and my mother fed them some bread and jam. And when all of the other guests left, she was still squatting there beside the door. And my mother took both of her hands in her hands and shared with her the gospel one more time. And she said, you didn't believe me when I said that I had accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. She said, is this not Ramadan? Ramadan is a Muslim fast day. And did I not eat in front of all of these guests? And my mother realized, yes, that's probably the best testimony this woman could ever make because it was a public renunciation of Islam and embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Muslims sure did not question uh, her having uh, embraced Christianity because from that point on, they persecuted her. Her relatives tried in various ways and finally succeeded in putting her to death. And so she eventually died at the age of 105 But here was a woman who is just remarkable. She could live that long. A woman whom God would not let die until she heard the story of salvation from the lips of a person who trusted God for the death of her child who could only live a few days. God had mapped out the days of both of those people. And uh, I have to say that the death of my brother was not a tragedy. Yes, from our perspective, it's a a loss, it's a hurt, but God had a perfect plan for that. Uh, It was an answer to prayer. It was not meaningless. It was a marvelous death. Now, the story continues with a totally different answer to prayer, but it starts off very similar in verse 3. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, let me comment on that phrase. He saw that it pleased the Jews. Tyrants are not usually ignorant of the feelings of their people. In fact, sometimes they're paranoid about the feelings of uh, their people and their reactions, but they know that these feelings can be changed over time. Earlier, it was only the religious leaders who hated Christianity. In Acts 2, verse 47, it says that the Christians had, quote, Favor with all the people, unquote. Now, that is a remarkable contrast. It is now 44 A.D., only 14 years later, and the same people who were pleased with the Christians and the Christians had favor in their eyes are now pleased 
that Herod has put one of their leaders to death. What in the world is going on here? That's a remarkable contrast. What it shows to me is that the attitudes of the public can be very easily and quickly manipulated. It's astonishing how quickly the population can adapt to new forms of tyranny. And you can just think of how quickly the German population adapted to some of the tyrannies under, under Hitler. But think of America. You know, 30 years ago, if the politicians were to have suddenly started doing the things that they are doing right now, I think they probably would have been run out of office. Uh, I know people who just over the course of my life used to think very poorly of abortion and of homosexuality and now think nothing at all of it. In fact, they're kind of offended or at least embarrassed when I'm in opposition to homosexuality and abortion. It's the frog in the kettle syndrome. You drop a frog, which I don't recommend, into boiling water and it will jump out, okay? But you put it into cold water and slowly heat it up, or so the saying goes, and you can cook it to death. And... Even Christians often only seem to react when it is too late. In any case, you look at that phrase, it is quite clear. It's not just tyrants who are evil. It is the people who allow tyrants to exist. They would just go along with things. Verse 3 goes on and it says, It was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, that's a cool side note. James had been executed just prior to Passover and these days of unleavened bread. And Peter, who is arrested right before this festival, he cannot be put to death because that would be offensive to the Jews. So God in his providence, he knows it's James time to die. So he has James arrested before the festival and executed. It is not Peter's time to die. And so he makes sure that he's put into prison during the time of the festival and he can't be put to death. Now, God, God could have taken him out of prison right away. He had a purpose for keeping Peter in there uh, during that time to glorify his name. But look at verse 4. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now, four squads means that Peter is being guarded by 16 soldiers personally put to him. There's additional soldiers outside, but 16 soldiers Probably they were assigned to uh, four six-hour shifts, guarding him around the clock. Verse 6 adds the detail that two of the guards are chained to Peter. So each of his arms are chained to a guard. And there's other guards outside. Herod wants to make sure that he does not escape. Why does he give maximum security to Peter? Well, I think it's because he's already gotten out of prison two times uh, previously, chapter 4, he gets out of prison. Miraculously, he gets out of prison in chapter 5. So he makes sure this Tower of Antonio is completely uh, completely secure. And uh, there is no way that Peter is going to escape, or so Herod thinks. Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Apparently, the church set up teams of people to pray uh, around the clock. Not a bad idea when troubling times come. And in fact, if I get thrown into jail at some point, I hope you guys set some kind of a prayer vigil around the clock because Luke indicates there was a connection between the prayer and Peter's release. It can save lives. Uh, we, We need to take prayer 
uh, very, very seriously. But this is a very special word that is connected to prayer here. The word constant is hectanos, and it refers to intensity. The only other time that it's used by Luke is in Luke 22, verse 44, where it says, And being in agony, he, that is Jesus, prayed more earnestly. There's the word. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so Hectano's prayer, according to many people, is a kind of prayer that at least approximates or approaches the kind of intensity of prayer that Christ had in the garden. Now, any Christian can experience this from time to time, but it does tend to be rare. I've only experienced it two times. First time, I was very startled by it. Uh, the only thing I could liken it to uh, was a guess at what giving birth was like because it was so painful, so intense. The, 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 it was almost like the pushing of this prayer through you and it went on for so long. Uh, but as soon as God gave me release from that, I knew that the prayer had been answered. And so any believer can have it, but there are some Christians who are especially gifted with Hectonos prayer. Very intense, spirit-driven intercession. Uh, Wagner's research has brought him to the conclusion that there's only about 5% of the church that has this gift. He defines it as the special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to pray for extended periods of time on a regular basis and see frequent and specific answers to their prayers to a degree much greater than that which is expected of the average Christian. These are people who very typically will pray two to five hours a day, just driven to it, driven to prayer. Now, some people call it travailing in prayer. But if there's anybody in this congregation who has experienced that, please talk with me about it. I would love to find out if there's anyone who has that. It's a very special gift. Now, any kind of prayer is important. Although God has given us other weapons of warfare, prayer is very important, probably the most important weapon we have. In verses 7 through 9, we get another marvelous truth of Christianity, and I really, I really love this story. Now, behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself, tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out, went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Now, I love that phrase, did not know that what was done by the angel was real. He probably thought he was dreaming, <laughs> you know, that uh, this is just too strange that I'm getting out of that prison. But that phrase, I think, gives a healthy corrective to extremes that we see on the subject of angels. The first extreme is to think there is never going to be any angelic activity in people's lives today. And this corrects it by saying it was real. Okay, Luke says it was real. The other extreme says we should expect miracles and angelic appearances every day. Now, if miracles were 
commonly experienced every day, they would cease to be considered to be miracles. And if uh, angelic appearances like this were every day, then Peter would not have wondered, is this even real? Apparently, Peter had not been experiencing this kind of thing every day. And so I think this is a a corrective uh, to those two uh, extremes. And so when I say that the presence of angels is real, I don't mean that they manifest themselves necessarily all the time. They're always around, but angels aren't always permitted to talk to people, to manifest themselves to people, do miracles for people. I believe in miracles. I believe in angels. I believe they're real, but I think this passage gives balance. And several of you have said that you've experienced uh, angelic visitation at least once in your life. Yesterday afternoon, I was talking to Tom Collin, and he shared a story with me that happened when he was 15 years old. He was on a swim team, and they used to swim in the Missouri River, and uh, they would many times go out halfway, catch a log, rest a little while, and then swim back. But this one day, they decided they were going to swim all the way across the Missouri River. And in the middle, it was pretty swift current and very cold. And Tom was just getting absolutely exhausted. He was wondering if he was going to make it across uh, the river. Uh, the others made it more easily. And he finally drug himself out of the water. He just felt limp and weak uh, from that uh, endeavor. And then these guys say, OK, let's, let's swim back. And he says, there's no way he was going to be able to swim back. He said, no, let's go walk over the bridge. It's just a mile down the road uh, because he knew if he got into the water as weak as he had been coming this way, he would not have made it. And they pressured him and they pressured him. And finally, giving in to peer pressure, he decided he was going to go across. And as he was getting walking into the water, he said he knew he was just going to his death. Isn't that weird how peer pressure, fear of what other people will think will make us do the stupidest things? But it, it does. It, it, it happens to so many of us. But anyway, uh, he was getting in. He knew he was going to his death. And out of nowhere, a boat appeared and asked if they would like a ride to the other side. And they should, said, sure. And they got into the boat and uh, went to the other side. And when he got out of the boat, as soon as his legs touched the ground, he turned around, the boat and the man had disappeared. Now, this was a straight stretch, wide open space in the Missouri. He couldn't see where they had gone to and the others couldn't uh, see the boat either. So he's convinced that that was an angel that was sent to protect him from his uh, foolishness. My wife experienced that in a car accident. A girl had uh, quickly you know, talking with friends and without even looking, just quickly darted right in front of her. There's no way she could stop in time, hit the girl. And before she was able to dart out of the car and go to the girl and see if she was okay, there was a paramedic right there taking care of her and bringing encouragement to, uh, to Kathy. There wasn't anybody there other than these girls. And then as soon as the people needed came, just disappeared, vanished into thin air. And I know that there are other stories that, um, that we could tell. But <clears throat> the reason I bring these up is that the church in America needs to rid itself of the false rationalism that does not believe in angels and wake up to the reality that there are spiritual beings constantly at work in our lives. There are demons at work trying to undo you. There are angels at work 
trying to help you. Hebrews 1.14 says of the good angels that they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Now, if that's their job description, they have been sent to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. You know they're on their job. You know they're involved in your life. In fact, I'm convinced whenever we have a worship service, there are all kinds of angels in this room. The reason I know it is because 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that uh, there are angels who witness uh, our worship. And this angel appeared to be able to do things that we humans cannot. Uh, appeared to be able to put these uh, guards to sleep. Or if they weren't put to sleep, there were blinders on their eyes and they couldn't hear anything that was going on. Uh, somehow these angels managed to undo the shackles and uh, managed to open those gates and keep them from creaking too loud and taking, uh, uh, taking them out uh, past the other sets of, uh, of guards. Uh, some uh, commentators believe that just from the evidence in verse 10 that this is probably the Tower of Antonia and, uh, and that has a massive iron gate that opens up into the street and it says in verse 10, just opened of its own accord. Now, God could have just spoken a miracle and it happened by itself. But it also could be invisible angels. They're usually invisible. Invisible angels who opened that gate. Whatever the case, this angel or these angels, if uh, there were more that were uh, involved, were at work because of the prayers of the saints. There are many scriptures that tie together angelic work with the prayers of the saints. Daniel 9 and 10, there's warfare in the heavenlies between the good angels and the fallen angels because of the prayers of Daniel. Then in Daniel 9, verses 22 through 23, the angel says he was sent because of Daniel's prayer. Angels in Revelation 8, they're made to wait patiently and wait silently until the incense goes up with the prayers of the saints. And it's only then that they're able to sound their trumpets and send regiment after regiment of angels out into activity. Until that time, they have to wait. And so there's many scriptures that indicate there is some kind of a connection between our prayer life and what angels are able to engage in. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 11. When Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Now, that word expectation means eager expectation. Just as people today love to watch, um, you know, the news as voyeurs of crime. Um, and these guys were interested in finding all of the little news and tidbits about what Herod is going to be doing uh, to these Christians. Newspapers pander to this expectation, as does gossip. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons why so many people go out to watch these uh, evil Knievel and other daredevils do stupid, impossible stunts and are a little bit disappointed if no one breaks a bone or no one dies. Uh, but in any case, um, eager expectation. Verse 12, so when he had heard this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark where many were gathered together praying. Apparently, prayer meetings were well attended when apostles were in jail. Verse 13, And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. Isn't that an interesting phrase? We can be irrational in our grief. We can be irrational in our joy. 
And she's just like so exuberant, she doesn't even think to let him in. She's going to tell the other people. And it's just, this is just so true to life. I've seen this happen, this kind of thing. So she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now, there's another interesting reference to angels. <coughs> his angel implies that they believed that angels were assigned to different people. The Reformation Study Bible, uh, some of yours are called the Geneva Study Bible, says they thought it was his personal angelic guardian. Matthew 18.10, Hebrews 1.14. The popular conception was that such a guardian could assume the appearance of the human person protected. Now, we could chalk that up to ignorance or we could chalk it up to Luke thinking, well, that's it's an okay assumption, you know. Uh, we don't know which way to go on whether angels can appear that way. Maybe in favor of the second is that this was a church prayer meeting. There was probably church leadership there. And secondly, this was the house of John Mark's mother. Now, John Mark was another apostle and he would have been taught by Christ, uh, probably not buying into superstition. But whether angels can look like the people they're guarding or not, you know, we really don't know. Um, I want to just go down a rabbit trail and give you some scriptures which appear to support the idea that there are indeed guardian angels who watch over us. And I'm just going to go through these real quick. Matthew 18:10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And I want you to notice the possessive, their angels. You know, that you're doing bad things, they go and report to God, you know. You're in trouble, man. You're messing around with, with uh, the kid that's uh, been assigned to me. And so I find that encouraging. Each of our children have angels assigned to them. Psalm 91, 11 through 12. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And nowadays it's lest you kill yourself stupidly in a car accident or even some other person's stupidity. I'm convinced when you see the, uh, the things that went on in William's car accident, I mean, it's just amazing. He walked out of that car accident unscathed. Front, how fast was he going? 60, 60 miles an hour head-on collision. But anyway, I, I think there must have been an angel that was uh, involved in that. But it goes on. It says, you shall tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. Those were symbols of demons. And the implication is that this triumph over demons is in part the work of angels. In fact, the whole psalm is a psalm showing how God delivers from all kinds of things. The arrow that flies by day, the pestilence that stalks at night. He mentions war, evil, plague, destruction. It's a tribute to guardian angels. It's not superstition. Luke 4, verse 10. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. Now, is that not a function of guarding? Angels who have charge over you to keep you. To me, that seems like a guardian angel. That's uh, Luke 4.10. Hebrews 1.14. Actually, we read this earlier. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Psalm 34.7. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Daniel 4.13, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. Now, some versions translate that a guard 
a holy one. And there's one other verse that talks about these watchers relating to individuals. Now, the question comes, if there are guardian angels that are assigned specifically to one person and others to another person, are there guardian angels who are assigned over these, you know, in terms of an authority structure over large groups of people? And I believe the answer is yes. Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. They need a guardian. Why? Because they're going through a time of trouble. Matthew 4.11 Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. 1 Timothy 5.21 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels. And so, he's charging Timothy in the presence of angels who are witnessing what, are, what is going on. 1 Corinthians 11.10 for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And so there are angels involved in all of the activities that we engage in as Christians. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. And I think that 1 Corinthians 11 is saying, hey, don't offend them. Don't offend them. Now, back to Acts 12. Let's look at verse 16. <clears throat> now, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Now, that's an encouragement to me. <laughs> Here are people who are praying for his release. And they just can't believe that their prayers have been answered. Some people tend to think of first century Christians as being superheroes. They're just ordinary people like you and I are. Okay, And God worked through uh, their simplicity uh, just like he works through you. Uh, verse 17 could be a great description of the underground church in China. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. There are some underground believers who are so careless about security, you'd think that they had a death wish. And we're wondering, man, how come these guys are being so noisy, you know, with all the, the risks that are here. But most underground Christians are really cautious. They don't sing loud. They don't talk loud. Uh, they are really taking precautions and that is not fear. Peter was bold. He was bold as a lion, but he was also wise. Uh, it is an issue of wisdom. Going on, it says, He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison and he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. God's army needs intelligence. They also need wisdom. And just in case other people have heard the commotion that's going on, as these guys are all excited that Peter is out of prison, uh, he decides, man, maybe I better not stick around here. Neighbors might have overheard. And so it says he departed and went to another place, simply using wisdom and prudence. Now, the next two verses show it's not just Christians who get killed. When tyranny triumphs, anyone who cooperates them, or maybe hasn't even filled up his quota of how many Christians to arrest can get punished. And we've seen this uh, in, uh, with our friends in other countries. Verses 18 and 19. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And so this was the second marvelous answer to prayer. God gives Peter a miraculous escape from prison. Now, in other countries, there have been times where the church has been praying. One believer escapes from prison. The other has been sentenced to prison for 18 years. Now, the fact that these guards are executed implies that 
that Peter was going to be executed because they got the same thing that would have happened uh, to him. We don't always know God's purposes. Why does he let one person out and another person has to suffer? We do not know, but we do know God is on his throne. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. And there is no reason why we cannot pray that God would bust people out of their jails in Saudi Arabia, in Eritrea, in North Korea and in other places. I think God would be glorified by that. Now, one commentator said, well, maybe Peter got out of prison because it was prayer and James didn't get out of prison because there was no prayer. I think that's going beyond the text. And the scripture seems to indicate there, there was constant prayer meetings uh, that were uh, that were going on. <clears throat> now, the third prayer worth praying is that God's enemies would be destroyed. In verses 20 through 23, we see the glorious destruction of Herod. Now, this is puzzling, too, because. In Acts 2, the church has been praying the imprecatory prayers against Herod and against Pontius Pilate. Why does he wait until this chapter to suddenly destroy him? Again, we don't always know the answers to that, but this is one thing that we can say with confidence. It's not just the Old Testament that judged individuals, judged nations where God brought historical judgments. He brought him here too. And if it was okay for the early church in Acts 2 to pray the imprecatory Psalms, it is perfectly appropriate for us to pray them today as well. Beginning with the last phrase of verse 19. And he, that is Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, and perhaps this was done with bribery, that frequently went on, non-Christian countries, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. It's amazing how, how many compromises and ridiculous lies people can make in order to maintain most favored Nation trading status. And we could apply that to modern politics. I won't. But verse 12, I mean, verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. You know, it's an amazing thing. This guy even wanted to receive this because he had to know these guys are lying through their teeth. They're just doing it to get bread. But in some way he feels stroked. Now, this was a disgusting death. Uh, the historian Josephus, who lived at the time, describes this as well. Just just slight de- detailed differences. But anyway, the, the people addressed him as a god. God's judgment immediately fell. He was eaten by worms going all through his body. For five days, Josephus says, he cried out in pain. His body was a stinking, smelled like a stinking carcass, even though he was alive. So what a just death for such an egomaniacal tyrant. Now, tyrants a lot of times get gorgeous funerals, right? But here's the reality. This is the prelude to the eternity in hell that he's going to be experiencing. Now, some people have wondered, man, could that really have happened? Is that even medically possible? And there have been documentation, both ancient as well as modern, of uh, worms eating people while they're alive. In fact, Kathy Krutz uh, clipped out just a few weeks ago an article where they're trying to eradicate the last of this one kind of worm 
that just eats through people's muscles, extremely painful, and will eat through an eyeball and come out of people. And these guys are so superstitious, they say, oh, you can't poison that water because uh, the worm god will come after us. You know, They're trying to get rid of it, but the, the, the natives there just would not let them. A similar death happened to Antiochus Epiphanes, who tried to destroy believers prior to the time of Christ. Uh, a historian at that time says, And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms. And while he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away. And because of his stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. Now, is that not a marvelous, marvelous death to the enemy of God's people? On his uh, web blog, uh, Kevin Cowthon tells the story of a nightclub opening on Main Street in a small town. And upon hearing the news, the only church in town organized an all-night prayer meeting and asked God to burn this nightclub down. And a few minutes later, lightning struck the club, purportedly, and it burned to the ground and the club owner sued the church and the church denied responsibility for this <laughs> destruction of the club. And after hearing both sides of the question, the judge said, it seems that whatever the, wherever the guilt may lie, the nightclub owner believes in prayer while the church doesn't. <laughs> and that pastor's question was, do we believe in prayer? If the same thing were to happen to this church, would we take responsibility for the answer received to a prayer like that? <laughs> a good question to ask. But I think we ought not to feel any shame or discomfort in asking for judgment against tyrants. I know it's not popular in some circles. It is biblical. In fact, Luke 18 says the church should never stop asking for judgments against its enemies. Now, that's the, uh, the parable of the importunate widow who keeps persisting and persisting. But you know what? Most people apply that just to ordinary prayer. Christ makes it very clear. She's asking for avenging. And here's his conclusion. Now, shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now, of course, he's not going to do it if we don't ask for it, if we don't pray for it. There have been countries where Christians have passively sat under persecution decade after decade. And finally, it dawns on them. You know what? We ought to ask God to take these guys out. We ought to pray the imprecatory psalms. And if the church can do it in Acts 2, why can't we? And as I've been instructing some of the leaders in uh, other countries that I've been going to, the lights have been coming on and they have been saying, I think you're right. Maybe we will start praying these prayers. Agostino Nito was the first dictator of Angola. Very psychotic tyrant. Persecuted the church with a vengeance. One time he boasted within 20 years, there won't be a Bible or a church left in Angola. I will have eradicated Christianity. Now, when you've got a person who is as bold as that in his opposition to God, he needs to be taken out like Herod was. Uh, when the church finally pulled out the imprecatory Psalms, began taking this tyrant to the courtroom of heaven, God took him out. Nito died of mysterious causes on an operating table in Moscow. Extremely uh, suspicious circumstances. Let me quote from Peter Hammond some similar incidents that took place in Romania. A communist official ordered a certain pastor to be arrested. The next day, the official died of a heart attack. By the way, these guys were not, were not afraid to pray these kind of prayers. 
Another Communist Party official ordered that all the Bibles in his district were to be collected and pulped to be turned into toilet paper. This blasphemous project was in fact carried out, but the next day when the official was medically examined, he was informed that he had terminal cancer. He died shortly afterwards. On another occasion, a communist official who had ordered a Baptist church to be demolished by bulldozers died in a car crash the very next day. See, our God is a God who continues to be a God of judgment. He goes on. When an order was given to dismantle a place of worship on the mountainside in a forest, the workmen flatly refused to carry out the order. At gunpoint, a group of conscripted gypsies also refused to touch the church. In desperation, the communist police forced prisoners at Bayonet Point to dismantle the structure. Yet the officer in charge pleaded with the local Christians to pray for him that God would not judge him. He emphasized he had done nothing against Christians, was only obeying strict orders. The building was, in fact, reconstructed later and again used for worship. Nicolae Sosescu, the dictator who ordered much of the persecution in Romania, was overthrown by his own army and executed on Christmas Day 1989 to joyous shouts of the Antichrist is dead in the streets. Many testified that this was in answer to the fervent prayers on the long-suffering people of Romania. Now, so Mora Machel was the first communist dictator of Mozambique. He was a cannibal, ate human flesh at uh, the demonic ceremonies that they went through. Uh, he closed churches, placed tens of thousands of Christians into concentration camps. He publicly cursed God. He, he, he told God, if you are alive, kill me. I mean, he would do things like this. And the church took up the challenge, began praying the imprecatory prayers. And his plane was struck by lightning. It crashed. And by the way, when they... Uh, checked out the plane, they found plans for overthrowing a neighboring country of Malawi. Our God continues to be a God who can bring judgments. And we can praise Him when He does bring judgment. We can praise Him when He chooses not to. The fourth marvelous answer to prayer was the glorious advancement of the Word. Verse 24 ends this section with a simple statement, but the Word of God grew and multiplied. And that should be the goal of our prayers, that God's name would be lifted up, that the church would expand, and that the Word of God would triumph, that it would have victory. Uh, many people have pronounced the death of Christianity, that they would destroy the Bible, and they found themselves wrong. Voltaire vowed to destroy Christianity within 50 years, but following his death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house and used it as a place to publish Bibles. Voice of the Martyrs gave a similar story for Romania. On Thursday, I ran across an old poem that likens the Bible to a blacksmith's anvil. Now, a blacksmith's anvil was a massive, big piece of metal. And they would heat up uh, metal like for horseshoes and things like that. And then they would have big hammers that they would hammer them out with. And so the poem says, Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so, thought I, the anvil of God's word for ages skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammer is gone. Is that not true? There have been many hammers like 
Herod Agrippa, who have sought to stamp out Christianity and to destroy the Bible. And yet, verse 24 will always continue to be the result. But the Word of God grew and multiplied. That but contrasts the worms with the Word. All else will perish and stink that does not conform to the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promises that are in it. We thank You that You are greater than Satan and all of his forces that are arrayed against the church. We thank You that we need not fear the enemy, that You will build Your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank You, O God, for the many promises that uh, You have given that if You are for us, who can be against us? And I pray that You would give us a confidence in our prayers to uh, ask for all four of these things that we find in Acts chapter 12. And may You be glorified in this church as we seek to advance the cause of Christ. It's in His name that we pray this. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> a psalm that